Hello everybody and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. A big shout out to our sponsors, TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes, who have been with us on this journey since the start, supporting us to making this podcast happen. So you can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, on Facebook at Trevor James Flutes, or by visiting tjflutes.com. A few weeks ago, I dialed in to Newfoundland's award-winning songwriter, looping flutologist, touring artist, film composer, inspirational speaker, Rosalind McPhail. And Rosalind explores new ways of combining image, inspiration and sound in audio-visual works that speak honestly of people, places and human experience. Rosalind is a classically trained flutist, and she specialises in layering moody vocals, electrifying flute loops, omnichord, and whatever that is, and driving electronics through her effects pedals and the digital audio workstation Ableton Live. So I started by asking, when did this fascination with looping and effects pedals start? Oh, wow. Um, I would say... It was when I was living in Ottawa. I'm a Canadian flutist and I've lived in many different parts of the country, but I was living in Ottawa. I had just been studying for my master's degree in, in classical flute performance. And I, you know, was really torn about being behind the written page. And I was also really torn by my experiences of playing for other people and just always, you know, having my creativity controlled by others. And I started hanging out in different singer-songwriter circles and really checking out the live music scene there. And Montreal happened to be really close to Ottawa. So I would take the bus to, to Montreal and I would just be so inspired by the music scene there. And there was this indie rock festival called Oshiega that still exists. And uh, amazing festival, if anyone wants to check out some great indie music. And I was all about indie music at that time. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I had seen a, a solo artist who is named Owen Pallet, but at that time he called himself Final Fantasy. And he's a violinist, classically trained violinist, really amazing composer and, and um, just like a phenomenal musician all around. And I saw his set at Oshiega and it blew my mind. I like watching him mixing synths and violin and his voice all through looping and being able to just create this full band sound just it, it really inspired me and I went back to Ottawa and I was like how can I do this on the flute what can I do to like make this work and at the same time I was playing with all different bands and all different songwriters and improvising with them and like really discovering that I had this gift for improvisation and loving that I could dance on the stage and just loving the energy that the audience, you know, was giving back to. Um, and funny enough, like one of my friends, because I kept kind of reaching this brick wall, like in these situations of playing for other people, because it was always spontaneous. I was known as Mystery Flute Girl. And, you know, I would be like, I would just go up to people and be like, ah. Oh, 
I hear flute in your music and I want to try playing with you. And I would approach like famous bands, <laughs> famous songwriters, you name it. Anyway, I, funny enough, like I kept hitting this wall because I wasn't part of a band. I wasn't part of like, you know, building my career towards something that way. It was very unpredictable. And I remember so many different songwriters that I was playing with at that time would always say the same thing. Like, Rosalind, start your own band. Start writing your own songs. And as a classically trained flutist, at that point, I really could not see myself being a songwriter. I, I was like, how do I write lyrics? How, how do I even use my voice? How am I even going to like figure out how to write a good song? And one of my friends in Toronto, bless his heart, he gave me his classical guitar and he was like, take this home with you. You can have it for as long as you want. And I want you to start trying to write your own songs. And at that point, I just turned 30. And I would practice in the middle of the night when I knew nobody was listening. And I started writing my own stuff. And funny enough, six months later, I decided that I was going to document every aspect of my songwriting journey for the rest of my life. And that's what I've done. And so six months later, I released my first EP. And at that time, I bought myself my first looping pedal, which was a Digitech Jam Man. <laughs> and I mixed the guitar my voice and my flute. And that was the beginning of the journey. Thanks to Owen Pallet. Yeah. And Oshiega. I, you've, you simplify it, my lady. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's actually harder than that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> the transition from classical flute player to whatever you define yourself now, and we'll speak about it a bit later because you're not only a flute player, you're a composer and you're a creative artist and you're a singer. When was that transition? Because being classical and focus on the classical to then suddenly start deviating outwards, it's not an obvious and can be quite a dangerous, yeah. challenging move. Yeah. You know what it was? And I believe everybody has a bit of this in them is uh, I always had it in me. I just had to discover that part of me. That's very Michelangelo, and isn't it? It's, you know, Michelangelo <laughs> would say that uh, I don't carve anything, he, that he's in or she's in the marble. I just break the marble open and there it is. And reveal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, when I was younger, I was always a performer. Like I, you know, I would stand on a table. My parents were hippies, right? So like there were people over all the time and I would get up on the table and just go, it's seen Rosalind McPhail, and I would perform for them. <laughs> it's just like one of those things. I loved it, you know. And my dad had an amazing vinyl collection. And every Sunday, we would listen to that vinyl. And he would, like, he'd be even kind of training me in a weird kind of musical way where he'd be like, what's the name of the band? What's the album? And he really tried to help give me an encyclopedia of, you know, what he had in his vinyl collection. What did he and have? And he would jam. What did he have? Oh, gosh. You know, I love reggae. So he had tons of reggae. Oh, but wow. I also remember very clearly that he had classical music too. And I used to love listening to the 1812 Overture. That was like kind of my intro to classical music. <laughs> um, and also, you know, I, I loved the band Traffic. Um, and one of the albums that really influenced me to want to start jamming on flute was listening to Chris Wood. Yeah. In traffic yeah. and like listening to John Barleycorn must die. And like that, like I love that album. I still play that album. And I, you know, in high school, I actually got my dad to form a band for my my final recital because I went to an art school for high school. And, you know, in this recital, I actually did John Barleycorn must die. And it was, you know, it was awesome. But yeah, I would say all of that kind of like passion for music, like it didn't matter what style it was in my dad's world or in my world, it still doesn't mean anything to me. Is it good music? You know, does it give you goosebumps? Does it make you feel something? 
does it take you to a different place? You know, that's the kind of music that I really love. But as a daughter of some hippies, two hippies, why the flute? Because surely the natural instrument would have been guitar. Yeah. So I grew up um, on Toronto Island, which is uh, it's a small group of islands in the harbour of Toronto. Um, it's about nine kilometres long and there's about 900 people. It's a very small place. And at that time, it was a real hippie community. Unfortunately, when I was younger, I developed really bad asthma um, and it was very hard to control. I was on a lot of medication. Um, I was having to use, you know, one of those machines with the air pump to, you know, get my Ventolin stronger into my lungs and I would have to take it to school and they called me Darth Vader at school because I was always taking these masks. And my grandmother had read an article in the newspaper about how playing wind instruments helps asthmatics learn how to control their breathing better. And funny how serendipity works. There happened to be an amazing flute teacher right down the street in this small community who transformed my life, Courtney Westcott. And uh, she was amazing. And that's how I started playing the flute. But at the, at the start of it, I was really grossed out by spit. <laughs> I mean, I was at that age as a girl, you know? And I wanted to play the double bass. I didn't want to play the flute. Um, but you know, her teaching was just so fantastic that she just, yeah, she made me feel special and she made me feel like I had a gift that I could embrace and, and feel like I stood out in, in a special way that way. So yeah, that's how it started. That's how it began. And it has helped and I will have asthma my whole life, <laughs> but playing the flute definitely helps me breathe better. The joy for life that you have the, the the smiles and the you know the general happiness that sort of surrounds Rosalind McPhail have you always been like that I think so I mean I would say that it's not always happy inside but I definitely feel it's so important to share joy in the world and I really try to do it with integrity and authenticity and if I'm not feeling joy, that's when I step back and I take some time for myself to really figure out what's going on. Why am I not? Why am I not in a good headspace right now? Yeah. And I think I've always been that way. Yeah. I also, though, had a lot of kids bully me when I was a kid and had a lot of, you know, experiences of just feeling really lonely. And I think from that, I made a decision to never treat other people that way, to never, you know, never make anyone feel exclu excluded, help them find their superpowers, help them shine. That's, that's everything about what I do. What do you do, if you do anything, but I'm sure you do, to quieten that inner critic? Because we're going to come on to in a moment to your artistic endeavours and how you sort of transformed a lot of the visual and musical uh, scene that you're, you you inhabit. But with that comes the inner critic. How are yeah. you, how do you speak? How do you cope with that? Oh, you know, it's a lot of, uh, when we hear the thoughts in the brain, okay, I have this parrot on my shoulder. The super ego is my parrot. And because the parrot squawks at me all throughout the day, every day. And, you know, it, sometimes it can get really, really loud. And I, you know, when I recognize the parrot, because I don't always remember the parrot is there, but when I recognize it, I recognize it and talk to it and try to figure out the place of where that parrot is squawking from. And then I just tell the parrot that it has no place in my life anymore. <laughs> That's one technique I do. Um, with my younger students, what I do, uh, especially if they're, you know, in a bad headspace in lessons, like if they're playing a hard piece and they're like, I can't do this. Or they're, you know, just getting ready for an audition or something really big. 
I'll just stop them and I'll be like, okay, let's do this. Repeat after me. And I just say, I'm awesome. I can do this. I'm having so much fun. And we just keep repeating it over and over and over again until they're just beaming. And every time we do that, it's just amazing how much better they play. I do it for myself too. There's some, you know, really nerve wracking performance experiences I've had throughout my life. And sometimes I will have to go into the bathroom and step away from the noise and just really do that work. Interestingly enough, I recently, actually, I think just over the last like six months, I've actually been using emotional freedom technique um, and noticing the benefits, the power of using emotional freedom technique, tapping. It's, it's phenomenal. It's, it's been totally transforming everything inside uh, and, and meditation too. Meditation's huge in my world. Yeah. Because emotional freedom is something that I think a lot of people won't, they won't be aware of it because they're just aware of, as you say, your parrot, or I think Professor Peters, who wrote The Chimp Paradox, um, said it's, his, it's the chimp in, in him that is the, the, the mischief one. You know, that is, the, that is the one that is the root of, you know, the one that is flight or fight. It's the, the survival instinct. And it's the parrot there that's telling you, I, I need to do this, you need to do this. But mm -hmm. em emotional intelligence, certainly for a musician, and emotional freedom if you can begin to get little parts of that into your life, wow, doesn't the creativity, doesn't that spark just start? And it's not just one spark, it's lots of sparks because you have the space. Yes, yes. It's huge because, you know, one thing that really happened to me a lot when I was doing my classical training is I had horrible stage fright mm. and I would have to find ways to get through that because when I was feeling that way, it didn't matter how hard I practiced. It didn't matter what time I was putting into my instruments. It, I just wasn't able to shine on the stage with that. So it came out of necessity of just like needing somehow to adjust that internal energy and thought process so that I could just be present and really enjoy the moment. You know, another thing that like has always helped me, and I know probably lots of people do this, but looking out into the audience, instead of feeling judged, look at them and say, wow, they're all here to support me. They all want to see me shine. They all want to see me succeed. They're so proud of me. And to change that, also is really huge you've actually flummoxed me with that because uh, that is a technique that i used many many years ago because i had stage fright the audience are not coming to see you fail they're coming because they want to hear you play they're coming to hear you play music and most of them will disappear not knowing if you've made any mistakes and if they have they don't care totally so yeah. i totally get that so understand that the audience are there to see you to hear your music, to be moved, to have the hairs on the back of their necks stand up. But they're here to listen to you. And how special is that? The fact that they've chosen to really invest their time and energy into being a part of that experience. I often forget that. Not that anyone comes to see me play anymore, but um, I often forget that <laughs> 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 people that come to see me talk or to do something, they're actually here to... So to have fun. But it is a fundamental area for artistics, that is musicians, painters, writers, is that freedom and that emotional freedom to allow us to really push ourselves, to push our boundaries, but more importantly, to move away from the dots on the page, those little blobs with sticks, which yeah. are very binary when you look at them as an, in a mathematical equation. But yet... They are words, and it is like yeah. reading a. You don't read a book, and you don't you don't sort of do all this monotone sort of writing because it the, the book is very very boring. Each word means something inside your head, and each one of us can hear different words in a different voice. If we can create that freedom that you're talking about, 
each note comes alive and then enables you to start doing what yourself are doing, which is breaking away from the fundamentals of flute playing and start exploring other areas, which is what you have done. So there's such a different vibe with your creative work. Much of it is pedals, but you know, that isn't sort of unusual nowadays, sort of in the 2022s. But yet your ability to utilise visual and auditory artistry, I find fascinating. Can we just explore that where it's okay making an auditory sound, it's okay being, being part of a band, and it's okay to create this sort of stage presence. But when you put music together with a visual as in movie, and you're writing the, the music, and you're scoring it, and you're playing it, to go alongside the visual. How does that work? And when did that start? When did that sort of creative movement? Because again, that's quite a an interesting route to go down. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Oh my gosh, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about all this. Wow, yeah, you're taking me on a, a trip throughout my life. Thank you for that. I guess, yeah, I was, I, okay, so I had turned 30. I packed up all my belongings in Ottawa. I realized I had grown bigger than Ottawa, or at least at that time, I felt that way. Um, and I went to the Banff Center, and I was taking a, a residency there for the winter, and it was super inspiring. And my choice of what I was going to do was, I was going to develop enough songs that I could start touring, just like all the bands and songwriters that I was so inspired by that I was jamming with. And so I booked my first tour <laughs> from the Banff Center, all of uh, Western Canada, and uh, just like had a blast. I must have sounded horrible, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we'll ignore that part. And I reached Vancouver Island, and I fell in love with Vancouver Island. That is a brilliant. Uh, it, it's, it's a quite an odd place, isn't it? Sort of, it literally is. about hundred meters or a couple hundred meters from Vancouver or whatever it is. But it's odd. <laughs> but how wonderful it is. Yeah, love hopping islands. So there I was on Vancouver Island, and fell in love with the community of Victoria. So I decided to stay. And I, at the time, I really, you know, it's so interesting how life happens this way. If we're in tune, if we're in the flow, if we're present with everything and we can see the signs and hear our intuition of what's happening. So at the time I was meeting the most inspiring artists all over Victoria. And there was this really cool art party scene called The Project. And they would have these art parties every Friday, sometimes Saturday nights too. And it was like the highlight of my week. Like you could just feel the energy. You could feel it was buzzing and that it was a special time in our lives. And there happened to be an amazing filmmaker, an experimental filmmaker, Scott Amos. And we really hit it off and we actually started dating. And I was so inspired by this man. Like he, he, did weird stuff too. Like he would hand process his film, which was a huge influence in my work. Um, and he would hand, pro he would experiment with like, you know, doing different things with film and sticking it in bottles and putting it in his basement studio. And like, he was just like such a cool scientific art, scientific artist, you know, real, just like wizardry with his filmmaking. So I just inevitably wanted to collaborate with him and I started writing music for his short films. And we had so much fun with it that I wanted to explore how it would be to actually perform the scores live. And we used the project as our place to experiment with that. And the audience just loved it. They loved the dance of live music to film. And it, that was it. I was hooked. And then it was just, you know, many years of developing that, many years of being a huge admirer of so many different filmmakers across Canada and then meeting filmmakers in North Carolina when I did an artist residency there. And I think the real big moment for me when it came to like live music and film 
was a director and writer and just an amazing human and a force to be reckoned with, just amazing director, Ingrid Venninger, who lives in Toronto. She approached me and she said, I really want to do this wild concept with my next feature film. She's like, I want to do a live score with it. And I want it to be a different artist in every city that it gets screened in. And it was called He Hated Pigeons. And she said, I want you to create a score for it. And at the time I was like, there's no way. Like I had only ever worked on short films, you know, and they'd always been projects with like experimental filmmakers. I never like really worked on a feature film with dialogue and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, I know you can do it. I really want you to try this. And so there I was, I just dug in deep. It was like, I felt so much fear. I like, it was like, I don't know how to do this at all. But what I did is I just got past that. And I stayed in my pajamas for an entire long weekend. And I used my flute, my pedals, um, and an Omnicord an electric auto harp which i do most of my composing with and i just started working on that score for that film and that film was just such an amazing performance piece i performed it in new york city i performed it in ashland oregon in north carolina here in st john's newfoundland where i live and it just without that moment to really feel and experience the profound impact that live music and film has, I'm not sure I'd still be doing it right now. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing, our journey in life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk briefly about Raven's Blues. Oh, yes. The, the film, it tells the story of, a, of self-discovery by a young woman navigating her way through a vulnerable period in her life. It's really haunting and deeply honest. Now, what did you draw upon to score and perform this video? Whew, yeah, that's, you know, that's a really emotionally charged film, very similar to He Hated Pigeons that way. It's uh, interesting coincidences, right? We put ourselves out there. It's amazing what the universe brings back to us if we're ready for it and, and, are really dedicated to our purpose. So I was in St. John, New Brunswick. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've been all over the place. I've toured all over the place. And I was there for the East Coast Music Awards. And little did I know that year I was going to win Electronic Recording of the Years. And like to have a flutist learn, like get that, like it was kind of like mind boggling, right? But anyway, the night before I found out that really exciting news, I was at an art party um, for a festival called uh, Quality Block Party. And it was like such a cool indie festival and they were like doing it. Like they were doing this festival at the same time as the East Coast Music Awards. And Raven actually came up to me after my set because I was performing at it. And he's like, you know, I'm working on this project. It's called Homeless because that's the name of his film. And he's like, I really like everything that you do with your audiovisual work. I really resonate with it. And I'd love to get your input of, you know, how how you feel this film is working out. And I was like, I'd be happy to. And so when we did most of our um, collaborating, actually, while he was in St. John, New Brunswick, and me in St. John's, Newfoundland, and we would just go back and forth and talk about, you know, where he was in the process. And he had an amazing collaborative of folks that he was working with. And I just felt super, super honored that, you know, he wanted me to be a part of that. Then the time came that I really wanted to take this film on the road. And I, I just could feel how powerful this film was for audiences. We had performed it a few times at that point, and it was just really amazing energy to it. And, and Raven was like, I can't. I can't leave St. John. I've got a family. And like everyone in the collaborative was like, we can't leave our lives. We've got jobs. Like we can't go on the road with you. And so Raven was just like, 
figure out how to do it yourself. Like I'll give you all the electronic tracks and you create it the way that you want to arrange it for a solo performer. And so I was really lucky. I have a great producer I work with, Terry Barrow, and we sat there and tried to figure it out. Like how, how was this going to work? And we figured out that we wanted this album in particular to have this effect with the visuals of like really being quite trippy for flute, like really using the effects pedals and like Ableton to an extreme that I hadn't used before, incorporating the alto flute into looping, incorporating the piccolo into looping and really featuring my voice. So the original score had Raven's voice and I had to figure out how to do it for myself. And it was, it was a really amazing experience. And um, before COVID hit, I was really fortunate. I got to perform it in Scandinavia. I, I did it in Sweden and in Denmark. And I also got to perform it in North Carolina at the Kugloris Festival. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, I had, I I love that. That particular project for me, um, I feel like it still needs to be seen by the world. And I'm kind of excited to see how that unfolds for me it was like complex simplicity because yeah. it's very complex in what you were doing but the simp it did not take away from the visual so it was there and in fact it actually enhanced the visual oh that means so much yeah I love performing that piece I you know it's also one of the first projects where I I really incorporate dance into it too. I had never really embraced that. Like, yes, I love to dance on the stage and always have the energy, but that one in particular, I've actually choreographed in a way that there's particular dance that I do throughout the film. And then there's a whole other element that I've never experienced with the audience and they love it. It's yeah, it, it makes people cry that, that, that particular project, people usually cry. They share their stories of, how it made them ref reflect in their own lives. And uh, yeah, it's it's very powerful. So thank you for getting it. That's awesome. <laughs> I did. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. As is your TEDx. You did oh. a TEDx and it was it is stunning. If anyone gets a chance to see it, check out. I think it's on your face. You, I think it's on your website. I think you have a link yeah. on it. It yeah. is really fascinating what you've done, Aww. that visual con construct. And you told me earlier, before we came on air, that you had your body painted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Yeah, I loved I loved being painted. It's like there's, it made me feel like a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> how, long did that, how long did it take, these, that paint, that sort of all that artwork on your body? That one in particular, I think we spent at least like four hours. Yeah. 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 And it's wild because like I had to be like completely like mentally ready for my performance before I even got painted because there was like no, no time to have that quiet time after being painted. It was just like go to the show. Because when, yeah. when you do a TED talk or a TEDx talk, there's no repeat. You've got to be no. on the money for that short amount of period you're on, on the stage. So, bravo. It was fabulous. Oh, thank you. So, oh, my gosh. I don't know if you can hear the horns in the background, Jean-Paul. Is that what they should? But there is something that really special. I'll, I'll stay quiet for one second and I'll tell you about it. Oh, now it's going to stop. It sounds like, a, sound like a foghorn. It'll start again. It's all different horns in the harbor. They do this thing. It's, we have a festival right now called Sound Symposium. Oh, I've got there it, it goes I've got again. It. <laughs> and uh, they do the harbor symphony every day of the festival. And all the different horns from all the different boats will have a piece written where they try to make those sounds from. It's it's amazing. It's unbelievable. The whole harbor is just a symphony of horns. Yeah. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah. Who would know, this place is amazing. Who'd know that where you lived, it'd just be this creative gem. <laughs> where every, it, yeah. where even, even the boats in the, the harbour have got their horns going. Yeah. I'd say St. John's 
and Newfoundland in general, like the reason why I moved here 13 years ago is that it is probably one of the best kept musical and artistic secrets in all of Canada. It's just everybody has creativity in them. Yeah. Well, I hope no one's listening to this because you don't want people moving, <laughs> there, do you? <laughs> I said, I, I, said, I said to Rosalind earlier that we, Claire and I started out only hoping to make 10, but there's too many people listening, and we're, we're well into our 230s now, and, um, you know, we just want people to stop listening, so we've got an excuse to stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's never going to happen, Jean-Paul. It's no, going to keep going. Uh, I, know, just, <laughs> I, I don't know who these thousands of people that download each week are, but um, can you stop doing it, please? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so let's talk briefly about the the non-musical side of Rosalind. And you touched on it earlier when you spoke about hot yoga and meditation, which is an important facet to explore if you have this chirping parrot or you have this chimp or you have this thing that's talking to you, the inner voice. How important is that in your life? It's crucial. I can't, I can't be a good performer without it. I, there are so many different rituals I have in my life in order to be able to pull off what I do. Because the thing is, with audiovisual, it's like a whole new element of what can go wrong at your show. It's, you know, it's a mixture of like not only trying to figure out if the audio is going to work, making sure that you have a good team for that, or if sometimes you just don't have a team and you have to rely on yourself. Every venue is different. Um, there's just so much stress from that aspect. And then you add the visuals and then it's, okay, are the visuals working? Is the lighting okay? Do I have what I need on the stage to really feel confident that I can pull this off, technically speaking? So if I'm not in a good headspace, then I affect my team. I affect how my performance is going to go. My banter is horrible on the stage. Like there's so many different things that can go wrong. And if I'm not taking care of my mental health and of the health of my body, um, it's, it's just, it's not going to work. So these are different things that I've done to cope with that. Um, one of them is yoga. Uh, even when I'm on the road, I'm, I'm doing yoga. Uh, I love doing a lot of walking, um, just to like really contemplate, kind of go into contemplation meditation. Um, and also juicing, uh, juicing green vegetables is a really big one for me. So <laughs> it's funny, people probably don't know this about me, but usually when I'm at the NFA convention, I usually order a crap load of juice from a local juicing place and I have it in my fridge and I drink that the whole time to keep me going because otherwise, how do we run around like that <laughs> without putting some vegetables in us? <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's a whole bunch of routines. Like um, another one for me is that I love ceremony. So I have certain rocks that I like to hold on to for protection and security. Um, I also use a lot of sage and Palo Santo wood uh, to clean the energy in my studio because there's a lot of people that come in here that don't, don't always have the best energy. And also to really create, you know, some inspiration and uh, just an openness to be able to be creative. So many things. I could just go on and on and on and on. We are probably nowadays, with the advent of social media sort of 10, 15 years ago, I think it's probably longer than that, but... I think I was on Twitter 14 years ago, which is why I've got at flute, which is a bit of a weird one. But anyway, uh, the advent of mental health issues is really prominent nowadays. I don't and perhaps that is because or exacerbated by social media, because, you know, we didn't have this this uh, immediate uh, comparison with other players. We didn't have this feedback. We didn't have trolls in those days. With your students and when you're out giving classes, 
Do you touch on the mental health aspect of it? Because I've spoken to so many people over the years, some of really, really highly respected and also really famous people, and they, you know, they could have millions of followers on social media, but one comment from somebody they don't even know will affect them. Yeah. How do you begin the process with people you're talking to to tell them it's okay? Yeah. You know, a big one for me uh, is to always remind myself that it's nothing personal. So when these things happen, it's not about us at all. It's actually usually about the other person and how they're reacting. Um, When I do classes and when I'm working with my students and when I'm working with my clients, I'm a pretty open book. Uh, I I believe in being vulnerable and being authentic. I don't see any other way in the world. I need to be myself or it just doesn't feel right. Um, So when people ask me questions, I really try to listen as much as I can in a, you know, a really open way. And I think that's the biggest thing is it's not offering the advice, but it's more truly listening truly being in that place where you can sit with someone and feel their fear, relate to their fear, and just share that space with them. I think that's what people need the most right now. Yeah, an acknowledgement if that they're feeling crap, they're feeling nervous, rather than going up and saying, you'll be fine, you've done all the work. Inside, they're not feeling like that. So as you're exactly right, sort of sharing that just listening that listening ear how are you feeling and then that was almost halves that that's those stress levels but also appreciating that there'll be 10 20 percent of this people in the people in the world that however much you try to please them you can't however much you try to get them to like you you can't however much you don't want them to say something (laughs) You can't. So, you can't. Yeah, no. it's so true. <laughs> so, and that has it's always been my sort of mantra, really, that if I get a negative comment or someone says something to me, you're just one of the 20%. I don't care. Go away. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's, it's a real good indication if they're your people or not, too. And if they're, if they're your people and they are being sometimes, and good friends can be brutally honest with you, but you know it's coming from a good place. If it's yeah. not coming from a good place from someone you don't know, that's just one of those twenty percent. Let it go. Yes, so so true. It's so important. I think this is the biggest part that really um, debilitates. Yeah, professionals is to really try to find a place where we're not taking things personally when other things happen to us. Yeah, I think it's a real difference of a victim mindset. And an owner mindset. And I think it's so important to, when we catch ourselves being victims, because I think we all are victims during certain circumstances in our lives. But it's like, how can we take ownership for it? Because the language is so different when when we're the owner rather than the victim. Oh, you're, you're exactly right. And these these problems and these feelings and these emotions, doesn't matter who you are or how successful you are, it still hits you. Oh, for sure. And it can hit yeah. you at a really strange time. It can hit you in the middle of, middle of a performance. Yeah. So I know there's a cross-section of people that listen to Talking Flutes from sort of young, sort of 16, 17-year-olds, all the way up to people that have come back to flute playing after having children and grown up and then suddenly decided, well, I can play the f- I used to play the flute, so let's start again. Don't worry. If you're getting anxious or you're getting nervous, don't worry because that's normal. Almost embrace it. I always tell my yeah. pe- my the people I talk to when I do classes that when those feelings of nervousness or anxiety, I want to say anxiety because that's very different, but nervousness start bubbling up. Say, hi, I wondered when you were going to appear. How are you doing? <laughs> Tell How are you me. doing? <laughs> because as soon as you try to bottle it, it's like you become a pressure cooker, don't you? And then you, if, mm-hmm. if you try and bottle everything rather than getting it out and just sort of say to the parrot on your shoulder, <laughs> been waiting yeah. for you to chirp. Yeah. Oh, I, I took a workshop with Shauna Pranatus 
the uh, the other week, uh, great flutist from Chicago, and she talks about the monsters that we have monsters, <laughs> and she actually got us to draw out the monsters, which was like super amazing, and so like I had a scarcity monster, and I had you know like all these different monsters, and it, you know sometimes I think that's part of it, right? Like making it fun. That's why I have the parrot on my shoulder. I- you know, one of my students, he calls it an earwig. <laughs> That's what he has on his shoulder. Oh, um, but like, you know, sometimes we just have to label these things that, you know, and, and be curious about yeah. it and, and just be interested in it and, and spend time with your monsters. It's kind of important to recognize them because they love to silently sabotage our decisions and our actions or our lack of action in our lives yeah they don't like to be silenced so if you no. just laugh at it and say ha ha because it's normally with me when on performance it's i'm normally quite relaxed but i like the fact that you need to build up build yourself up to a performance it's normally just as i'm waiting to go on the old um, inner <laughs> voice will start and for me it's, i mean i start laughing and i just say inside my head ha ha at last where have you been my friend <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> and, and the benefit to that is you're actually then di- making a dialogue with this inner voice which is stopping you from thinking or getting nervous about the impending performance yeah it's true yeah so when you go out onto the stage right we've already discussed this the audience are not your enemy i will repeat no. the audience are not your enemy <laughs> you can normally tell can't you when someone walks onto the stage whether they are acutely nervous by how they walk on and how they present themselves what do you do you probably run on don't you no <laughs> you know funny enough i had so i had my first show since last september i because we've wow. had a lot of shutdowns because of covid around here and uh so it's been a long time since i've been on the stage and i was actually terrified to go on the stage it was a big stage and it you know and it was a kind of a strange audience it was an outdoor audience on George Street for anyone who knows St. John's and like it's a party street (laughs) just bars lined up with bars so you don't know you know who you're getting in the audience and I was terrified and I it's interesting because one of my songs I actually forgot my lyrics and I had to keep going and I had to pretend that everything was fine. And afterwards, I yeah, I felt the shame inside. I was like, I felt like I had like let down the audience, right? And and I, uh, it was a real struggle in my thoughts. And when I did my banter with them, I just said, "Thank you for being such a supportive audience." You know, I have to share with you. This was such an interesting moment for me because I just totally forgot my lyrics (laughs) you know and I just laughed about it and everybody felt more ease and and that's the thing I think you know as performers we just need to be authentic like when I started the performance I actually shared with them I said oh my gosh this is the first time I've gotten on a stage since September I'm actually terrified but your smiles and your energy is so lovely. And, you know, it's it's just one of those things. It's, it's a relationship between the audience and us as performers. And when we can really connect with people that way, wow, like it's so cool, right? When you get to like experience a show where you get to see the musician on that stage is actually being human, not perfect. And the connection between you, the musician, and the audience, or the examiner, or the jury, if you're going for an audition or you're doing an exam, is critical because it it demonstrates that you are not surrounded by a shield. This isn't about you playing the dots. It's about you understanding that it's a process of communication. Yes, you got it. That's exactly how... It should be. It's not always like that. <laughs> and, and that seems to be your life, isn't it, Rosalind? It's about communicating, whether it's communicating yes. through the classical genre. And on your TEDx, by the way, you play classically classical flute absolutely beautifully. Oh, thank you. And yet you <laughs> managed to change your sound 
depending on the audio visual or the visual, sorry, that you're playing with. So you can go quite edgy, you can go quite airy, and you can mess around with the tonal colours depending on the the genre. Yes. And aren't we so lucky that we get to play so many different instruments too? I mean, that's that's part of what's opened my palette is being able to play all the different kinds of flutes. And Ableton Live too, that program, it it just it's mind-boggling what you can do in that program. So yeah, no, I'm all about color, texture, energy. What's the energy and what's the emotion behind the music? No, I get that with the bass flute. I get that with the alto flute. And I can even get that with the concert flute. But you do it with the evil twig. <laughs> <laughs> you do it with the piccolo. I mean, it's, that is dangerous. I mean, I scare my neighbours. Um, I, actually use, I actually use the piccolo to scare magpies in the garden. Because for some reason, they don't like high F and F sharp trills. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, if you go out and you play high F and F and F sharp trills, they fly away. <laughs> <laughs> but but you you take the piccolo and you sort of turn it into this mode of communication. It's not just the top line in an orchestra. It's not just a beautiful sort of Vivaldi concerto or something. And for me, it's quite joyful to hear that. Oh, that's lovely that you said that. I, you know, I have, a, I've always had a love for the piccolo and I think it's probably because it's always made me stand out uh, <laughs> as a performer, you know, but I must say, like, I have to give a lot of love to that piccolo in order to be able to play it well with looping, especially mm. like for intonation and also like to do extended techniques on it. I find, you know, like I, in, um, and don't let me fall too far. I'm doing like a lot of whistle tones on the piccolo and you know, that like to do that on the spot <laughs> can be really tricky sometimes if we're, if we're nervous, especially. Well, it's, yeah. mani- it's managing the harmonics uh, that come out on the whistles, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Making sure you get the right notes. Yeah. I'm pretty meticulous about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you can play the piccolo. To me, it will always be the evil twig. It was, <laughs> it's, it's always the thing that you can play, you know, that people look at you because it's that little top line at the very top. It's like the screaming trumpet in yeah. a jazz band, isn't it? It's that yes. thing at the end. You go, yeah. It's true. Yeah. I mean, it, I must say, I I can tell my neighbors get annoyed when I practice the piccolo. So I always try to do that first to get it out of the way, and then that way the rest of the instruments are are all right. <laughs> <laughs> you need to use it as a bird scarer. You, you, you'll, have, you'll have permission to play it all day. <laughs> That's awesome. Because it's I all about having that. fun. We're, we're all musicians. Yeah. And if you're not a musician and you listen to this podcast, it's because you obviously like music. And ultimately, the aim is to have fun. This is a fun musical instrument. The flute is not... You need to know the basics. You need to do the studies. You need to feel, do the, get the foundations sorted first. But boy, once you've done that, deviate off and have fun to smile and don't make it a chore. And Rosalind, I think you're a perfect example on how that you, you get your foundations right. You, you spend your formative years getting the, on the classical side, getting everything built up. And then you say, actually, I want to go that way. It's true. And, it's true. Find you, your voice. Yeah. yeah. And, open, and it opens the door. There's lots of doors in life, isn't there? And yeah. sometimes you'll open a door, you'll go down a path, and it's not the right path. So you just come back and then go out another door. It's not a disaster if you go down one, do- one path and it, it's not right. And it's I, true. And I think that you, you've gone down a path that is very unusual, and yet creatively it is enthusing you. And I can tell by your eyes and I can tell by your face that the whole concept of what you do is about joy of artistic creation. Yes, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) I just love it. I love the different stages we go through, you know. It's like every project I've worked on has been completely different. I'm working on a new album right now. It's going to be my first piece of vinyl that is my own. I've been on other people's vinyl. But I've never been, I've never created one of my own album. All these years, I haven't done that. 
And um, it's it's called Push and Pull, and it's going to be an audiovisual project as well. And it's really inspired by rural Newfoundland, which has so many rich stories. And I'm just so excited to be able to share those stories through vocals and Omnichord. And it's my first album that I'm featuring with with bass flute. So it's, it's kind of, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm so stoked. I'm so excited to see where it goes. And I have Brad Weber of really famous band from Canada called Caribou. Uh, he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal drummer. He is doing some of the electronic drum programming for me for the album. So it's going to be a really neat collaboration to see where it goes with like traditional songwriting, storytelling, film from the area and like just all the history from the area then like all of these cool flutes and omnicord and then yeah electronics i have no idea how it's going to sound but i'm pretty excited (laughs) rosalind mcphail you're pushing boundaries as always and you get a bass flute in your hand and i'm sure your life will be completely transformed because i love the bass flute I have a special weakness for an alto, but a bass flute, there's something special about the tonal quality of that. So you will have a field day. Oh, thank you, Jean-Paul. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your valuable day. And, you know, we will have to catch up again because we've only just touched on yoga and meditation and the... (laughs) How important! I know. <laughs> you know, when we when we were pre talking pre about the, uh, about doing the podcast, we actually started about talking. It'd be great to talk about meditation and yoga and and how we we develop our inner strength to enable us to be artists. Yeah, and we've sort of that would be fantastic. And we've hardly touched it. That's because I'm I'm totally fascinated about you as a musician. <laughs> so it's your fault. It's your fault, Rosalind. Aww. It's your fault. We didn't cover it. Sean Paul, you're a delight to speak with. You're just so lovely. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think the, the main thing is I don't take myself seriously, you know. And that's the best thing, right? We've just got to laugh and just and feel joy in every moment. I totally agree. You have. You've got to laugh and you've got to be like a chimney sweep in Mary Poppins. And you just <laughs> got to have fun and all that. So, Rosalind, before we go, it's okay us talking about your musical career, but... Should we actually listen to something? Oh, I'd love that. Shall we? Normally I can't yes. I can't ask that because there's all these rights and copyright issues with recording companies and you know I have to beg, borrow and steal to use something. But I'm gonna be really necky and say, Rosalind, can we use an excerpt of some, one of your lovely pieces? Oh, that would be an honor. Yes, absolutely. What should we listen to? I'm going to throw you on the spot. You haven't even thought about it yet. You know what? I think the song Alders, because we were talking about Piccolo, and that song actually loops Piccolo in it and features my voice. So, ladies and gentlemen, of the jury, of the podcast audience, here is Alders by Rosalind McCann. Time. 
Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.